0: Hello and welcome to The Film File, episode 64. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hey, hello and welcome to your favourite film podcast. And if it's not your favourite film podcast, why not?
1: I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin.
0: And we're back for another action-packed show. How you been, Andy? Since I uh, I spoke to you, I was gonna say saw you last, but spoke to you in, in lockdown heaven.
1: Lockdown heaven, um, unhealthy. I think oh, is no, the word I use at this point in time. Uh, yeah, I'm still I'm still getting the problems that we mentioned last week. That I'm waiting on phone calls uh, to try to get some resolution, but. You know, I'm changing my food lifestyle. I've adjusted what I'm eating because it does sound like I've got um, an acid reflux kind of case going on, which I'm going to get some investigation into. But it's a nightmare for me because you know how much I love my food. I love my spicy food. You can put anything in front of me and I will devour it. So this is a huge change for me to have to go. You know what? I've got to think about what I'm eating now.
0: It's been a big thing in our house. Uh, changing how we're eating as, I, as i've mentioned many times my partner became vegan and we've got free will uh we don't have to become vegan but uh i've had a, a i wouldn't say 100 percent vegan diet because i think when we eat out or get a takeaway i have a tendency to order but my my plant-based uh, uh intake is, is about probably 90 percent now of what i have and uh, if I could just kick dairy and acid reflux, I do have a bit of a, a dairy reaction. When I when love, I love butter and milk and all that sort of thing, but you know what? I, I think it's I can see myself going down the route. The easier it becomes, and the more alternatives they are, then yeah. uh, then it's a, it's a little bit of peace of mind, and it's it's a personal choice thing. And uh, uh, but I I recommend if you can, just thinking about your lifestyle choice and go. You know, maybe. Twice a week, I'll, I'll stick to a plant-based menu and, and see how it, it, it makes you better. Anyway, but we're not here to talk about food. Uh, we are, in fact, here to talk about film. Interesting little sidebar. Last week, uh, um, a friend of mine who works on a much bigger, more popular radio station than we do compiled a list of their 100 favourite singles, favourite tracks of music. And it set off a, a bit of a debate amongst the group of friends I've been, which has now led to the, your favourite 100 movies. Which I did, and I'm going to send it to you, Andy, and for you and I to discuss. But if you get the chance, and and either with like-minded film friends or or you know fans of the pod, do your hundred favorite movies. It'll take you forever. I got it to two hundred, and then I had to start cutting it down. But got down to hundred, and then demanded a um, a revote because I'd made a couple of uh, errors of films. <laughs> but I went on the principle of films that if the the TV came on and the movie was on. I would watch it again, even though I've got it on Blu-ray or I've seen it a gazillion times. But it's a great little exercise. I yeah. highly recommend it. I'll I'll send it to you, maybe put it in the show notes somewhere, a uh, link to it. But it, it was great. And um, I've changed it three times now uh, to my favourite 100 films. So, uh, But it, it's, it's fun. I'm now trying to do my top 100 TV. And I started TV series, but then I realised there's some great TV movies like Duel, for instance, Steven Spielberg's Duel needed to be on that list so i've included tv movies so there you go anyway this is uh the film file and in this week's episode we will be taking a deep dive into the mission impossible series andy will be reviewing
1: godzilla versus kong
0: no more monkey business there and he'll also (laughs) be taking a look at what's happening across all the streaming platforms will give you an update on our thoughts on episode three of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But in the meantime, Andy has been trawling the deep, darkest recesses of the web. Some may even call it a trench, but I'm sure that's the story for a little bit later on. In an item that we affectionately have now dubbed the news, because we can't think of another name for it. (laughs)
1: So, well, let's start with The Trench. Warner Brothers have ditched plans for not only James Wan's The Trench, but also Ava DuVernay's New Gods projects. Uh, they've confirmed that they're not going to move forward with the projects as part of their DC plans, although if they ever return to the idea of the two projects, those two names will still have ownership. So the respecting that they've put all this work in developing them that if they do decide you know what that New Gods did sound like a good idea they're not going to find someone else to do it New Gods for those who know comic books will know that it was based on the Jack Kirby creation which introduced the character of Darkseid and the Apocalypse in a war with the tranquil world of the new Genesis the cancellation has it come about because of the confusion it's going to cause after Snyder's already tagged additional dark side elements into his justice league and it will cause the whole, oh, well, if you are going to bring dark side in, why can't you just do it with Zach? Who knows? But I was never really enamored by the new gods anyway, but I thought it, I thought yeah, it was an interesting approach, too. but the trench, come on, that was never going to happen anyway.
0: <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I, I'm a bit like you Andy on this one. Um, I'm a big fan of Jack Kirby's uh, Fourth World saga. That was a, a huge introduction to a lot of characters. Mister Miracle, uh, so the New Gods themselves, uh, the Forever People, some some great uh, some 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 great characters. Uh, Tom King, in fact, who wrote the the great Mister Miracle uh, limited series from a couple of years ago, was was working on the script for for New Gods. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm I'm always very cautious of a a crowded market. Sooner or later, and I can't see when, and of course everybody's going to say the next Marvel film will be the big flop, but sooner or later, if the bubble doesn't burst, then it's going to recede somewhat. And I thought New Gods was maybe just a a push too far. The Trench, on the other hand, it it was a a tenuous, at least, linking to... Uh, aquaman that could be done yeah. as a standalone abyss type underwater horror movie and hey i i do love me a, a underwater horror movie so I, i'm not hugely disappointed by it It just seems to be one of those things also makes me think if the eternals this kind of knocked a, had a knock-on effect of it i'm waiting to see how the eternals do because that's kind of similar territory to uh to to new Kirby's gods, new gods.
1: Yep, The cancellations are probably more to do with the very busy slate that DC has coming up, because to run off just a few of the films, we've got The Batman, The Flash, Black Adam, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Blue Beetle, Supergirl, Green Lantern Corps, Static Shock, Zatanna, Wonder Woman 3, and the new J.J. Abrams Superman, all in various stages of development. That's a bit too packed, and we know what Warner Brothers and DC are like for panicking and shuffling things about and never committing to everything. So no wonder a few things are falling by the way wayside. But I'm sure there's going to be a hashtag campaign to say, restore, hashtag, new gods whatever, because we know hashtags work.
0: I, I just kind of think that the Warners and, and DC seem to be focusing on the this sort of the, the multiverse that they've created and doing side looks at characters and, and, and that sort of thing, rather than introducing, again, something new after they've gone down this particular route.
1: Yeah, let's see what happens with the projects that are still going ahead. Most of them already in production, some of them start in production within the next couple of months. Uh, meanwhile, Warner, Warner Brothers have celebrated some good news this week, haven't they?
0: What, uh, with uh, Godzilla yeah, versus Scott. so
1: we said last week when we spoke about the international reporting of how well it did internationally, that all eyes would be on the US, where the film was also going to be released on HBO Max for no extra charge at the same time as the box office. And it was the worry that the box office would suffer. But no, it was initially predicted to hold a 20 to 30 million opening weekend And it finished on around 50 million opening weekend. That is a fantastic box office figure for something that people can watch at home. Consider it on top of that, that the cinemas are still operating at like 50% capacities. This is kind of the largest opening weekend since the pandemic began this time last year. And it shows for certain that the streaming option was not going to kill cinemas. All the folk who were all saying that Warner Brothers are killing cinemas, are now adding a laborious amount of ketchup onto their very fibrous hats as they prefer, prepare to eat them. Whilst my analogy from last year of, I've got a fridge, but I'm still going to pay to eat at a restaurant, clearly stands. Save our cinemas was what we said last year. And how do you do that? By just releasing films, because if you show it, they will come. And this has been shown by Godzilla vs. Kong, proving that audiences want that cinema experience.
0: I totally agree, and and we've been behind this since since this this was announced. And and those naysayers who said, "Yeah, cinema's dead. It's all going to go to streaming." As you said, their hats are probably halfway <laughs> down their throats as we speak. But we've also talked about right at the get go that people want to share in the cinema experience. There is nothing like uh, sat in a room with other people and, and that, that sense of, of camaraderie and, and uh, connection that you get in a cinema. And it needed a film. And we talked about this in huge detail before, that a film like Tenor wasn't going to be the film to pull folks in. It needed a blockbuster. It needed something that was a proper bit of escapism. Uh, and, and clearly, yeah. if it wasn't going to be a Marvel film, or a, a DC film, then it was going to be Godzilla vs. Kong because what works better on a big screen than, than two, uh, two huge monsters uh, kicking the living tar out of each other?
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, another film that is kind of demanding further down the line the big screen outing is um, Villeneuve's Dune, which was one of the other ones that was planned for a HBO Max streaming at the same time as the cinematic release. Well, it now appears that the pushback from Legendary Films about the split release of it might have worked. And it looks like they're going to back off from doing the split release and they're going to give it cinematic exclusivity instead.
0: Well, Villeneuve was always very, very outspoken about uh, his film being seen on HBO Max and not getting a cinema release. Uh, and was one of those who absolutely sort of kicked back uh, against the streaming when initially Warner Brothers sort of said, you know, everything will go to to HBO Max. Uh, I'm like you and Please as punch that it is going to get a big screen outing because that's where *Dune* belongs. And again, you, you've got to, we live in an age where we want big canvas films. We want smaller films yeah. to go to, to Netflix. You know, this is a change in cinema. There's no point in denying it because that's the world that we live in. Dune isn't one of those films. Dune needs to be seen on a huge, huge canvas of the biggest screen possible because that is what it was designed for.
1: It looks more likely now that Dune is going to be the first Warner Brothers film which will adopt the new 45-day window instead. used to be a 90-day window before things went on to streaming or home release. Now they're going to be looking towards halving that and doing the 45 days, which that makes sense. That gives it enough time to run in cinemas, have an impact, And they can always decide to extend that window if it's still doing good business on week three, week four. Uh, Sticking with streaming, Universal may be looking to remove all their properties off other services and making them exclusive for their new Peacock service in the same way that Disney is slowly working to pull back all their content to their own service. Now, we don't have Peacock in the UK, so at this point in time, it's not going to affect us. But if Universal branch out their service internationally. Is this going to cause the cracks in the streaming model?
0: Yes, I, I think it will. I pretty much think that it will. Listen, we've only got a finite amount of cash to spend. We cannot keep adding on other subscription services. It, it just becomes a cash loss. I, I think Netflix is pretty safe because it it is the foundation yeah. stone that everything else is now built upon. I think Disney Plus is pretty safe Due to things like the Marvel Universe and Star Wars, uh, I know in the states they've got a slightly different model that you you can pick and choose packages, uh, and and that's proved very very popular. So, for instance, you can pick and choose through your local cable service who you who you want to have uh, and 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 buy in packages. And so far, we don't have anything like that, but I think ultimately something has to give, and no one has a finite amount of cash to keep saying I am going to be buying. Uh, Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Paramount Channel, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on because eventually something has to give. I don't think it'll be Netflix and I don't think it'll be Amazon.
1: Netflix, Amazon and Sky slash Now TV are probably the three safest ones with Disney being a fourth safe one. But I rotate myself around a few other ones from time to time. There's the Apple TV. I'll do a month subscription to catch stuff on there. And then I'll cancel that and jump onto Shudder. Then I'll cancel that and jump onto MGM. Then I'll cancel that and do BFI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because I can't afford to pay for 15 different subscriptions at between $5.99 and $9.99 each per month. It's asking too much. This is where it's going to become problematic. If every studio starts creating their own services exclusively for their products, it's going to someone's going to break, someone's going to fall. And the people who are going to suffer the most are us, the film-loving audience, who can't get access to the films that we want to see without having to chip out a ridiculous amount of money each month.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree.
1: Resident Evil. So the reboot movie has shifted from September to November. It's now going to arrive on the 24th of November. Uh, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, is a film that is going to play closer to the horror themes of the games and not hold any relationship to the Action Fest film series by... I love him, Paul W.S. Anderson.
0: I knew you'd manage to get that in. I thought you'd
1: get that in. The new film will draw on locations from the first two games. And one of the stars of the film, Tom Hopper, has said that the mansion has been recreated so perfectly it was like going into one of those VR things. He plays Wesker in the film, who fans of the game will know as the bad guy of the piece but he promises the characters going to be a little more rounded than the two-dimensional stereotype of that first game because th- the characters in the games were very typical of the genre, if, like for want of any better word. Um, Johan Roberts is helming the film with Kea Scodellario, Hannah John-Kamen, Robbie Amell, Donald Logue, and Neil McDonough starring. I'm looking forward to this. I do like the Resident Evil films that Paul W.S. Anderson made, even though they weren't anything to do with the games. But I'm a huge fan of the games and I'm interested to see a proper horror take on that franchise on the big screen.
0: Yeah, me too. It, it stopped being a horror movie, uh, Resident Evil. The first one was was pretty much true to the idea of it. And then it went off in a direction that, that I, I just couldn't follow and didn't. Anyway, I've got some news. Olivia Colman, uh, she's starring in Sam Mendes's new film, Empire of Light. Interesting idea for this. Um, Mendes wrote the script for this one. Uh, which according to uh, the press release is a love story set in and around a beautiful old cinema on the South coast of England in the 1980s. Uh, and even more promising uh, than that, and that sounds great enough is that Mendez will reunite with top cinematographer, Roger Deakin. So I am in.
1: Uh, Netflix have managed to have secure quite a nice deal for um, Well, Ryan Johnson's knives out series of films. Yeah.
0: And I, I knew we'd be talking about this and, and I knew we'd get, pretty excited about this. What a deal. I mean, have you got the figure in front of you, Andy? Because I I believe...
1: $469 million they paid for the rights for the next two films. That's not the production cost of these films. That's just for them to have the rights for these films. They're going to be crafted by Ryan Johnson and will once again star Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc. That was the only stipulation that Netflix had when they made this deal is that they would pay this money, but Daniel Craig has to be involved. Apparently, the money, like uh, over 100 million of it will go to Ryan Johnson. Over 100 million will go to Daniel Craig to secure his exclusivity with it. And 100 million will go to producer Ram Bergman as well. The first film cost 40 million to make, and the films will cost at least 40 million budget to make. But it's all in Johnson's hands. He's been told we're not going to interfere. Netflix will not be saying, we want you to have this, we want you to do this, it needs to be like this, it needs to be set here. You have full creative control, he can do everything that he wants with it, they've got complete confidence in it. The first film is planned to start shooting in June in Greece, so casting is already underway. So we're going to start hearing a lot more about this as it goes on, but 469 million, wow. that's a huge amount. But you
0: know what? Uh, for Ryan Johnson, this is a this is a great deal, and it's a deal that reminds me a little bit of George Lucas's deal that he had with 20th Century Fox with Star Wars. You know, he he wrote and produced this thing, and he retained the rights to it, so he could do whatever he wanted. And I think, um, you know, from what I gather, Ryan Johnson, when he made Knives Out, basically uh, had the option to do whatever he wanted, and he and he chose to retain the characters and retain the setup for it so fantastic and and a great you know a, a, a great director who is is that indie director who who steps very well into into the mainstream uh, and also brings that slightly indie kind of vision to it as well and and we love knives out I, I thought it was was absolutely fantastic loved it a lot uh, and can't wait to see more of that character and more what ryan johnson can do
1: yeah, completely on board with it. We, we we said when Knives Out actually came out, we both absolutely adored the film. And we both said that we want to see more... We want to see Benoit Blanc become the, the modern-day Poirot. Yeah. We want him to be a new detective franchise. And we're getting it. We're getting it at least two films. With the freedom that they've given Johnson with this, I would not be surprised if he sticks with Netflix going forwards. Yeah. Because they've given him quite a lot of freedom. And this is what I love about Netflix... They are playing the long game with things. They're not playing for a quick win. They're playing a long game of chess. They have made this deal for a reason, and we'll see that come to fruition in the coming years.
0: Well, talking of detectives, I have what could potentially be a little bit of a scoop. It comes from my man in the know, and we know that uh, Death on the Nile, Kenneth Branagh's uh, new take on Hercule Poirot, uh, was, was originally destined for cinema release, Uh, got pushed back due to COVID. We thought it was going to open at Christmas. So we know that it's been speculated that it was going to get a release next year. Anyway, the the gossip around town is that it will not now get a a cinema release and will go straight to streaming. Not because it's a bad movie, uh, not because no one has any faith in Kenneth Branagh and the follow-up. The fact being that it stars one Army Hammer and with everything that's happening to Army Hammer, the idea of marketing a film for a cinematic release which stars him has, let me just say, had a few worried uh, scowls on the on the look of executives. And so it looks like this will now end up as a streamer only. So we'll wait and see, but you heard it here first.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's that problematic element because of a star and his personal life has interfered in a film before it's actually been properly marketed we're seeing similar with west side story now we've mentioned this previously that there's not been a lot of buzz on this but that's probably because there's allegations made against ansel elgort who is the lead star in that film and that's again muddied the waters when it comes to the marketing of these films whether the allegations are true or not it could damage the film's box office and performance if it's marketed with those people involved it's Mm. a shame but that's the industry. Leica Animation Studio. I love Leica. Yeah, absolutely, I absolutely. love their animations, and I think that their films deserve a bigger attendance than what they actually get. Now, the big shock news this week is that they've actually greenlit a live-action film. Have they now? Yes. Uh, titled 17. It's adapted from the upcoming John Brownlow debut novel. Uh, Travis Knight, the CEO of the company, has said that 17 is a stiff cocktail of wicked wit, exhilarating action, And raw emotion. John has such a wonderfully unique voice. He's crafted a brilliant universe with its own powerful identity. It's a thriller with a soul, a sinuous, adrenaline fueled actioner with a sincere heart beating underneath its rippling pectorals. And just from that quote, (laughs) I love Travis Knight immensely. I think he's got a wicked way with words. Uh, Story details are completely under wraps because even the book's not out yet. But anything that like a touch, for me, is gold. It might not make the money that gold would make if you sold it on the markets. But I treasure everything that they do. And I can't wait to see this.
0: Um, You uh, told me about this. And this is the Borderlands movie adaptation uh, has added to its cast uh, Edgar Ramirez, who starred in an incredibly disappointing American crime story. And he'll be playing a character who is the main villain of the piece, called Atlas.
1: Yes, uh, the the creator and the big corporate overlord who came up with the Atlas Corporation who are the ones who are trying to trying to seek out the vault and obtain the alien technologies within, so they can dominate the universe. Uh, for those who don't know, Borderlands, it's adapted from the Gearbox game, following a group of Vault Hunters on the distant planet of Pandora, who fight against the savage locals and the corrupt Atlas Corporation to get to the tech in the Vault before it can get misused for ba- the wrong things. It's so already got Kate Blanchett, Kevin Hart, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jack Black, Haley Bennett, Ariana Greenblatt, Florian Montano. And like you say, now got Edgar Ramirez. So it's got a wide range of cast in there. Some great names, some, okay, some serious miscasts. But let's wait to see what happens because it's begun production now in Hungary. So we should start seeing some elements of the film in the coming months. Oh, have you seen the, did you see the teaser trailer for Picard season two?
0: I did. I also saw the Paramount teaser trailer, which had, a couple of juicy shots from uh, Strange New Worlds, the uh, Star Trek yep. uh, Captain Pike series, which I'm I, I'm more excited for that. And uh, Discovery Season 4.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of Star Trek drops this week, including we've also seen for the new animated Nickelodeon show. We've seen the character of um, Captain Janeway represented in animated form as being revealed. Uh, but the Picard Season 2 trailer, it's a teaser trailer. It's a camera panning in on the desk to a card of the Queen of Hearts, which then dissolves away to just leave the queue. And then you hear John Delancey's voice. And I'm, at that point, I was like, yep, I'm back in. You're sold. I'm in. You were sold. Given how season one finished with Picard's new life, it makes perfect sense that Q would now have an interest in Jean-Luc again, because he's always had this fascination with John lucs life and how he's lived it. Now that his life has kind of rebooted, yeah. It, it really does make sense that he's going to come back and test him again. I'm excited. I love John DeLancey. I loved, even though Q was only in a handful of episodes, every one of those episodes was memorable. So it's going to be great to see that continuation of that relationship between the captain and the energy alien. And like you say, discovery season four, Oh, that trailer looks nice. And i I like the fact that the classic colors of uniforms are back. Yes. I love the fact I that it's embracing that. that kind of feel again. It looks great so excited star trek is huge again as far as i'm concerned and i will never tire of it i know one thing that you've got your eye on as well which is uh the last of us oh yeah well you HBO know series.
0: this will lead into my neat thing later but uh tell me more
1: so production on the last of us the um, hbo series is planned to start in july Ooh, that's good. and the production will last until june 2022 So expect the late 2022, early 2023 airing for the series. Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are taking the roles of Joel and Ellie, and they've confirmed that the first series is going to be a direct adaptation of the first game. It's not just going to be inspired by, it's going to follow the story of, which I think is the right move, because that first game, the story was perfection. A
0: little bit of casting news. Salma Hayek has joined uh, Ridley Scott's Gucci film, which is described as a glorious soap opera by the man himself. And what we've heard this week is that Sylvester Stallone has confirmed that he won't appear in Creed 3, with Michael B. Jordan stepping into the director's role as well as uh, playing the lead character.
1: Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, Stallone's basically pointed out on a few occasions that Rocky's story is done now. Having him in the first two Creed films was kind of a way to, to wrap up everything for that character whilst allowing creed to become the new franchise and if he was to stick around for the third one it would take away from creed as a character so i think it's right i think i think he was his story ended beautifully on the second film and i don't think it needs to go any further the second film drew reference to rocky 4 and it had like the drago versus rocky kind of elements in there that's all been done now everything's resolved However, at the same time, Stallone has been developing ideas for a possible Rocky prequel series. and um, That obviously he won't star in because he's a bit old to be playing a younger version of himself. <laughs> but he he wants to tell like a, a young Rocky what made him pursue that element. I mean, I kind of feel that we we already got that anyway from the first Rocky film. But maybe there's some interesting backstory that can tap into. Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: I'm I'm dubious. I mean, uh, as as I said. I did my top 100 films of which Rocky was in. And it's such a perfect film that I don't need to know uh, the adventures of young Rocky because everything I need to know about the character is in that film. Hey,
1: remember the many times that we've spoken about news for a Transformers film? Um, we've spoken about how they're making a film which is not related to the Michael Bay or the Bumblebee Transformers.
0: Yes, we have mentioned that on many occasions, but I'm guessing by that Slight intro that you're going to tell me even more.
1: Well, there's now been released more news of the films that are going to be related to the Bumblebee and Bay, Bayverse Transformers. Anthony Ramos of Hamilton and In the Heights fame has entered final negotiations for the lead role in the next official Transformers Bumblebee-verse film. I say Bumblebee-verse rather than the Bayverse because it's going to draw on elements of the Bumblebee movie as opposed to being directly related to the Michael Bay movies. Now, we we heard a few years ago the possibility of an Optimus Prime solo outing similar to Bumblebee. This sounds like this could be the one because Ramos is set to play a flawed and vulnerable hero who is eager to redeem himself with the help of Optimus Prime. Stephen Caple Jr. of Creed Two is directing it from a script by Joby Harold. And it's going to pick up on the threads of Bumblebee. And I'm, I'm in. As long as Michael Bay is not attached, I'm in.
0: I'm just confused by the whole thing now. Um, I thought I got it. Thought I was with it. Whole new beginning. Seems I was mistaken.
1: I think they're, they're running the risk of it being quite messy if they are going to create multiple franchises. It's all about Transformers, but not directly linked. But this is the one that I'm more excited about because it's going to it's going to be linked to that Bumblebee movie, which was just perfection. It was. Stanley, the late, great Stanley. Now, he created a character that never saw the light of day called Monkey Master.
0: Did he now? He must have kept
1: that to himself. Stanley had loads of ideas and loads of sketched out things. Some of them made comic book outings. Some of them just remained in a desk, in a drawer, hidden away. Well, Monkey Master is one of his unreleased superhero comic book characters. And it's going to be getting a live action adaptation by John Woo. Mm,
0: well, that, that could be a better director to connect to a good action movie than John Woo, who we've not seen a lot of recently.
1: We've not. But this sounds like it could be right up Woo's alley. That sounds a bit rude. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, kids, you used it in a
1: sentence. <laughs> um, the story of Monkey Master follows an archaeologist named Lee Yong, who discovers ancient Chinese prophecies about the Monkey King, which we know... Some of us know from growing up watching Monkey on TV, the legend of the Monkey King. And it leads the archaeologist to India. There he finds a hidden power that turns him into the Monkey Master. Lee's comic idea drew upon the legend of the Monkey King, but gave it a superhero modern day spin. And it certainly sounds like the right kind of fun that John Woo could really throw his action chops into. But how is he going to shoehorn in helicopters, twin gunplay, explosions, motorbikes and doves? I don't know. He's you know what?
0: He can do that. I'm
1: excited to see this. But I've always loved the, the Legend of the Monkey King. I've always loved all the any adaptation of it. There's been films that have tapped into it. There's been TV series. There's a more recent TV series that have tapped into it again. And each time, I've embraced it and loved it. So, let's see. Let's see how this pans out.
0: So, putting your monkey down for a minute, where are you going next?
1: We know that Chris Hemsworth was spotted hanging out with Russell Crowe a lot recently, which linked to the news that Um, Crow was going to have a cameo in Thor Love and Thunder. But apparently, the pair have also been talking up plans for a Gladiator 2, in which Russell Crowe feels that Hemsworth is the only person who could realistically play the part of his original character, Maximus's grown-up son.
0: Kind of makes sense. It does make sense in in a in a strange bizarro world that that kind of figures.
1: I mean there's been rumors of sequels to Gladiator for many many years. I mean there was originally a time traveling like warrior approach that was getting pitched which everyone went don't be daft. <laughs> don't be daft. We don't need that. But this sounds like a better approach for doing a sequel to Gladiator where it is the son of Maximus who has been raised to know what his father did in order to free people and you know defeat a a corrupt emperor
0: have you seen any shots of chris hemsworth at the moment uh, on the set of uh, thor love and thunder man he's bigger than a locomotive at the moment he's i mean he's i think he's e- eaten his personal trainer he's absolutely <laughs> he, he's ripped he's and huge he is in a way that thunder. i'm not
1: <laughs> well i am as, as anyone who watches the video channel will know i've got <laughs> that physique I've, i just keep it well hidden underneath this ass uh, suit <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is it a suit? Have you got a Chris
1: Hemsworth suit that you throw on? Yeah, if you unzip at the back of my neck, (laughs) the real me jumps out. (laughs) (laughs) But we need to mark this one down about the Gladiator 2 news just as rumour at this point in time. But it is a rumour that kind of makes sense and does wet our appetites for what we could get. Now, we could mention that Ray Fisher has done an interview for The Hollywood Reporter, which purports to have him finally open up about all the events that have taken place. But the whole report was just a huge chunk of information that we already know. So we're not going to talk about this. I'm done with this nonsense. So let's round off the news instead with something nice about Bill Murray. Okay,
0: I'm always open to a good Bill Murray story.
1: Bill Murray has this persona that people assume of him, where he doesn't like the industry that he's working in. He's belligerent on set. He doesn't get on with people, but he's done a, a junket a Q&A thing over this past week. And reading through the whole thing has been marvellous because you see a whole different aspect of him. He loves the people he works with. He loves the directors that he works with. Even when he's been conned into a project like Ghostbusters 2, because apparently the script that he was pitched was completely different to what they ended up shooting. He still enjoyed the experience of working with the people that he was with. But with the Ghostbusters, there's always been the aspect that he was the one who was holding out and wouldn't do the third film. So when he confirmed that he was going to get included in the new Ghostbusters Afterlife, which was due out last year and is coming eventually sometime in the future, it caused a lot of confusion for people because if he hated it so much, why was he back? Well, he didn't hate it. And I've got a quote from him about his reason for coming back. I remember Jason Reitman calling me and saying, I've got an idea for another Ghostbusters. I've had this idea for years. And I thought, what the heck could that possibly be? I remember him when he was a kid. I remember his bar mitzvah. I was like, what the heck does this kid know? But he had a really, really wonderful idea that he wrote with another wonderful guy that I got to work with, Jill Keenan, who made City of Ember. The two of them wrote a Ghostbusters movie that really brings it back to life. It really has the feel of the first one more than the second one or the girls one. It has a different feel than two out of four. I think he's really got something. And Murray has also said that the actual filming of it was hard. It was really hard. And that's why I think it's going to be really good. And he says he's glad of the film's delays because it ultimately it will be worth seeing. He sounds like...
0: Well, a, well that sounds lovely, doesn't it?
1: If you can find the interview with him online, read it in full detail because he comes across so genuinely happy to be a part of film culture. And him talking up the Ghostbusters movie like that, when we know what he was like, even on the like production of Ghostbusters 2, he was very like, oh we we'll just repeat the same thing. And he was very negative about it. But to know that he's really thinks that this is going to tap into the feel of the first film, sounds good.
0: And there's a teaser trailer just dropped, uh, a brand new one for Ghostbusters Afterlife, which gives you an even uh, bigger hint to where the story is going and a neat little cameo.
1: Excellent. So on that note, that's what we like to call The news. <laughs>
0: So, hope you're enjoying the show so far, and if you are enjoying it and you haven't subscribed, then please do so. All you have to do is go to your favourite streaming platform, hit that subscribe button, and every time you subscribe, Tom Cruise does another stunt just for you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at...
1: Twitter, at Film UK, Instagram, Film UK, or you can email us, podcast, at FilmFile.com uk
0: and that leaves you no excuse but get in touch and subscribe okay with the cinema shut we can't bring you any current reviews what we can bring you though is a deep dive into classic films or films that we think deserve more attention and this week we are going to give you a deep dive if you choose to accept it into the mission impossible series
1: This is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Simple game. Is he serious?
0: Always.
1: It's much worse than you think. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset.
0: This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. So as soon as we said uh, Mission Impossible, of course, you started to sing the legendary Lalo Sheffrin theme. So the Mission Impossible series started, of course, as a TV series that ran through the 60s that starred Peter Graves in the role of Jim Phelps. And it was based around uh, the idea of the Impossible Mission Force, IMF, uh, that they would go on weekly missions to usually some uh, Eastern European soviet style country and rescue somebody or dupe somebody into giving information and they did so with a series of gadgets uh, a series of masks a series of impersonations and it was a hugely successful series so for a long time of course there was talk of a big screen follow-up. several scripts were produced that never got to see the light of day and along comes tom cruise so beginning in 1996 the film taking place six years after the end of the previous TV sequel series, follows the mission of IMF's main field team under the leadership of Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, to stop enemy forces while preventing an impending disaster. The film focused on Hunt as the lead character as opposed to the ensemble cast that the series had, although in later films, Luther, uh, played by Vic Rames, and Benji, played by Simon Pegg, had reoccurring roles in those films. The first movie was directed by Brandy Palmer and initially set the style for each film having a big name director connected to it. Of course, that changed later on. But initially, we're going to talk about Mission Impossible, the first film, as I said, directed by Brandy Palmer and brought Tom Cruise into his now longest-running franchise.
1: So I've had the pleasure of revisiting all of the Mission Impossible films over the past week and a half. And revisiting the first film is always a joy. This has always been the one that I considered my favourite, even though that has now changed, which we'll talk about later. But this first film, what I thought it did really clever was it played quite close to the original series, missions that self-destruct in five seconds, disguises, Jim Phelps. But then it flips it and plays it for a new audience, adding action and exciting and smartly sets up the new lead in Ethan Hunt. Whilst the film starts off and you're going, "Oh, it's Jim Phelps, he's going to be like in control of things. Yeah, oh, this is this is classic." The whole film is all to have and let's talk about the twist because it is if you haven't don't know this twist by now, then clearly you haven't paid attention to any of the Mission Impossible films, but Jim Phelps turned out to be the bad guy, which was a big shock when it came out. It was such a huge shock that that was the reason that Peter Graves refused to come back for the role. He, was, he had it offered to him, but he, didn't, he was displeased with the switch of his character's role and turned it down. And Greg Morris, who played Barney in the original series, also hated the direction that the film was going and so refused to get involved. But for me, I, I loved that twist, especially because the reasoning for it taking place fitted so well for the character. The Cold War era was over. He was a relic of that era, and he wanted to bring about a new Cold War. He wanted to feel comfortable in the environment that he'd spent decades working within. It made sense. It was a villain that you kind of went, can kind of see where you're coming from, but you're still a bad guy. But the film was all about getting Tom Cruise his star vehicle. Tom Cruise, as producer and star, was heavily involved in the creativity of the film, He was even the source for the idea of the restaurant with the fish tanks moment, which is absolutely magnificent. And of course, he did his own stunts for the scene because it was shot with a stuntman. Didn't quite look right. So uh, Brian De Palma went, well, can you do it, Tom? Yeah, go on then. Uh, He also had a a say in all the set pieces and reports have it that even though it came in under budget and on time, crews and De Palma didn't quite see eye to eye. But the finished product, you can't tell that there was any conflict on set. It works so well. And... The CIA break-in scene is still breathtakingly jaw-dropping. That moment, even though I've seen this film multiple times, that moment when I watched it again only a week and a half ago, I was still holding my breath. I was still tense. I I knew what was going to happen, but I'm still completely caught in it because it's one of those great scenes that utilizes silence. There's no music over that scene. It's complete silence deathly silence because any noise could activate the alarm system within that room. And so we as an audience are thrown into that situation with that tenseness marvellous.
0: So of course, as you know, Brandy Palmer is a, a huge references in all of his films, usually to, to Hitchcock. Um, but he, he referenced the, um, that classic scene that you're talking about from a, from a heist film called Top Carpe, which again, the the hero is, is, is held using ropes as they, as they break into um as part of the part of the plot, and it's absolutely fantastic, and of course, pure De Palma to take something that's existed before and, and and do something new with it.
1: Yeah, the cast within that first film, it was a great ensemble cast. Even when it kills off half of them within the first ten minutes of the film, for example, example, you've got Emilio Estevez who pops up, and at that time, Emilio Estevez was still quite a big name, running a, a series of different films in the lead up to it. He was like, oh well, he's in there, he's going to be, uh, oh oh, you've just killed him off within the first 10 minutes. Um,
0: yeah, the same with Crystal Scott Thomas as well. She doesn't make it through. Um, she only makes it through the first 15 minutes.
1: It completely throws you into this whole anything can happen in this film series. And I love that aspect because it means that you're constantly guessing throughout it. And in that first film, it weaves, it winds around. The twist you don't see coming. But when you rewatch it, you clearly see coming because it's obvious who who shot the gun that you see from Jim Phelps's point of view because it's his own hand pointing back and shooting at himself. But you don't notice it first time round because you weren't expecting it. Great little twists. I filmed the the first time that you watch it, you might not pick up and might not follow the story completely, but it makes perfect sense on repeated viewings and it all pieces together like an intricate puzzle.
0: It's funny you say that because all those things that you mentioned that you liked about it, I, as an old school Mission Impossible fan, found difficult. I always liked the notion of the team. I was disappointed that we weren't seeing Tom Cruise playing Jim Phelps I thought that's where the, the, the film would go so all, all the points that you've made in it I, I found quite difficult because as, a, as an old school Mission Impossible fan it was a team exercise in every, every, every movie it wasn't one person it was Jim Phelps Mission Impossible now subsequently where the films went and moving on from Mission Impossible 1 and kind of ignoring Mission Impossible 2, which also it seems that the Mission Impossible team kind of ignore Mission Impossible 2. The film starts for me with the third film, directed by J.J. Abrahams. That, for me, is when it felt like we were getting Mission Impossible.
1: Yes. I mean, the, the second film, John Woo just delivered a John Woo film. He just delivered all the clichés that he does in every action film. And whilst it's got some great action set pieces, there's nothing of consequence throughout the whole film it just tries to repeat the stunts of the previous film but take them to the next level that's not what you wanted you wanted an ongoing flow and like you say J.J. Abrams came on board for the third film David Fincher had declined due to scheduling and creative differences and Joe Carnahan had quit over the tone of the film he had a completely different tone in mind Cruz being in control of it all said no this is where we want to go But the start of Mission Impossible 3, what a way to kick off a jaw-dropping opener with a menacing Philip Seymour Hoffman counting down to a kill before it flips back to the lead-up to those events. And you are left after that opener going, did he kill her? What's going on? And it throws you completely into it, and you are engrossed in it. And it's character-driven. It's not action-driven, even though the action is great. It is character-driven. Ethan Hunt is given so much more character in this and the team aspect starts to get brought into it. We get Vingraims back, but we also get the introduction of Simon Pegg in this film. He only has a small, what looks like a cameo to start with in this film, but he was basically getting put in there to seed him for the future story. And like you say, I mean, I I loved what the first film did. I loved that it introduced the character of Ethan Hunt. I didn't need it to be a team-based one because we needed to know this new character. But once you've got the team around him, that's when it starts to go from strength to strength and the series went from strength to strength from this one on one, This third film, was ma- I'd not been back to revisit this one since it got released. So it was an absolute joy going back and revisiting it. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, oh, he was magnificent in a role that he wasn't normally cast for. He was not the kind of actor who would get cast in this kind of role.
0: No, I, I totally agree. I, I need, he's, because he underplays The Menace, The, the Menace becomes even more frightening. It had all the classic Mission Impossible tropes for me. It had the disguises used used in a way that was effective. It had the team element, which was important for me to feel like Mission Impossible because up until this stage, it didn't feel much of a connection with the, with the TV series. Uh, it had a, had a great plot. It had some great action sequence. I think Cruise came into his own on this and, and felt... It felt as though he now had more control over it. I, I know he's had control since the beginning. But the film started to go into, into a direction uh, that I, I liked. It, it really, really captured the impossible style that one wanted from from a series called Mission Impossible.
1: So when Brad Bird came in on the fourth film, who'd given us Incredibles and was making that move from animation over to live action. He started the ball rolling on making the series all linked together and making it pure Mission Impossible. He introduced the lighting touch fuse again at, over the opening credits with flashes and glimpses of scenes that were to come. And that was Mission Impossible. And he, he started drawing on threads from the first and third film into references, name drops, background detail... It starts off with a marvellous jailbreak opening, which introduces us to the team again. We get to know that Simon Pegg is back and the whole team are Ethan's team now. And it works its way through to an action-packed finale whilst weaving and dodging and diving throughout. And the franchise showed at this film that it was doing one of those rare things of actually getting better with every film.
0: I totally agree.
1: Christopher McQuarrie did some uncredited rewrite work on the screenplay and you can kind of tell when you saw how it went further. But this third this fourth film also introduced Jeremy Renner's character which I thought gave a nice balance to the team that the team felt fully rounded out and fleshed personality-wise and it gave some inner conflict but also some great camaraderie between them all.
0: And of course it has uh, apart from it it's incredibly stylish and it it has that Gripping set piece again that had sort of been missing in in, in the second one uh, that took us back to the first Mission Impossible, which is the the, the climbing of the hotel, uh, wow. which as as legend has it, Cruz did all his own stunts on that. It is an absolutely bit of breathtaking, stunning stunt work, and and started to 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 really, as you said, propel the Mission Impossible films into into being classic movies rather than just pretty good and as you said Chris Macquarie came in to do a rewrite on on the script and of course started to load it for, for the work that he subsequently uh, would bring to it and he, and he was the perfect he's the perfect match for that series having worked with with Cruz on numerous other films including just coming in and doing rewrites, he's a master storyteller. Uh, they'd worked together on the first Jack Reacher film, which is still my favourite of the Jack Reacher films because it has that 1970s vibe going off to it. Uh, and and he introduced um, the, the the background story to the IMF. He directed the next film. And interestingly enough, tradition ends there because he's now the director on all the Mission Impossible films.
1: Yeah, initially the whole franchise was a different director for each film to bring a different style, a different tone, a different approach. But Macquarie became such a perfect fit that it now makes perfect sense for him to stick around as long as he wants to. The fifth film, Rogue Nation, this is now my favourite one. The rewatch of it, I was just engrossed from start to finish and I think it is a perfect Mission Impossible film. It's made the franchise a pure Bond rival. And the disguises are still there, but they're not played about so much. It's not important to have the disguises. And the previous films serve as the pure bed for all the tales. There's a genuine sense that all the past missions have led to the dissolution of the IMF, leaving Ethan to go rogue in this film. And again, we have a stunt. And this is a stunt that completely took my breath away and took Tom Cruise's breath away for over three minutes. Uh, The underwater sequence of swapping the data cards in the database filmed apparently in one take and then intercut with other elements so that you couldn't tell that it was one take, but they filmed over three minutes of a one take. Cruz had undertaken training to enable him to hold his breath for over three minutes so they could get it all done in one shot. And you watch that sequence and realise that one of the things that makes this franchise so effective is the stunt work and the fact that Tom Cruise does so much of it himself because it allows the camera to be close up on all the stunts, so that we are there with him as he's hanging off the biggest building in the world, or he's descending into a room on ropes, or he's getting thrown by an explosion against a car, or he's drowning,
0: or in fact, with Mission Impossible Fallout, the 2018 sequel, that he even maims himself <laughs> over <laughs> well, a stunt.
1: Yeah. I mean, even on even on the uh, fifth film, Rogue Nation, he almost took his kneecap off on the bike chase. The shot that he almost did it is still in the film. Uh, while they're weaving through all the mountainous terrain on the bikes, there's a bit when he's leaning into the turn, and you see him judder a bit, and he looks down towards his knee because his knee rubbed just gently against the tarmac at 80 miles an hour. And then, like you say, in Fallout, he jumps between buildings, and he, uh, he cracks his ankle and proper breaks his ankle, and then hobbles away. And you look at it, and you go, oh, well, that was nice that they kept the continuity in there. No, no, no. He broke his ankle. <laughs> but they continued, he's still running. <laughs> continued running. And it makes it so much more believable. They keep those shots in there because he does them. But he doesn't go, oh, I've hurt myself. I've fallen, Help, medic. He just carries on until they say cut. And that is a professional. I think mean, the guy is... The guy is late 50s now?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's, he's he's the same age as me. I think I'm maybe a year older, but he's... Uh, and he's starting to look worn, and he's and he's grown well into that part, but, you know, uh, his body take, takes a bashing. But he comes back, and he's back for, for the next Mission Impossible film, along with Christopher McQuarrie. This has been delayed down to COVID, but it still looks to be a fantastic cast. Haley Atwell's joined it. Uh, uh, Sheer Wingham, who's one of my favourite character actors, has, has joined the cast, Nicholas Holt. And even more so, uh, Henry Sesney, who is reprising his role of Eugene Kittredge from the very first film.
1: It all comes full circle. It's like we said, that these latter films have drawn on everything. There's the name drop of Max, who was the uh, broker of the first film. Was name-dropped in Fallout. Everything is linked. And I love that because it makes it feel that it's worth watching every single one of the films. Even though you can watch them all individually, you get so much more when you rewatch them all together. You know what,
0: Andy? You've taught me into. Uh,
1: well, re-watched... I don't think I'll go back <laughs>
0: to Mission Impossible and Mission Impossible 2. I'm gonna start because I've got I've got three on Blu-ray. I think I'm gonna make it my mission, and I choose to accept it, to watch the Mission Impossible series from three.
1: Hope to fall out. Before we wrap up on it just want to do a quick mention towards the cast, the supporting cast throughout the series have been impeccable, except for part two we'll ignore two, um, even short cameos in the first film stand out, but in recent years we've had Baldwin was absolutely magnificent in a couple of films, you had Rebecca Ferguson added a great energy to the last two films Henry Cavill with his reloading arms Absolutely magnificent. Everyone shines in the films, even though they are, at the end of the day, Tom Cruise's franchise. He never, allow- he never allows himself to be the centre of attention throughout. He allows everyone who's cast to have their moments. And over the past two films, Sean Harris as the menacing Solomon Lane has chewed the scenery magnificently. I love the characters. Every character in these films make these films worth revisiting. And
0: this deep dive will self-destruct in five seconds Andy, you've, uh, uh, you've been scouring uh, what's on TV to bring us some very quick reviews as to uh, what's happening in streaming land.
1: Godzilla vs. Kong we've spoken about it, we've spoken about how well it did. Unfortunately I couldn't see it at the big screen, so watched it on the small screen
0: I made a promise to protect her he did the same
1: Godzilla. We need Kong. The world needs him. For those that don't know the plotline of it, Skull Island is at the mercy of a violent storm, and the enclosure that Kong has been kept in there can't last forever. So an opportunity comes to move Kong to help locate the entrance to the Hollow Earth. Remember Hollow Earth from um, the previous Godzilla film?
0: Yeah, yeah, remember that.
1: Well, here's where we get to take it. However, once off Skull Island, Kong can be detected by Godzilla, who appears to seek him out to reign supreme as King of the Monsters because monsters got to fight. But recently, Godzilla has also been seemingly randomly attacking coastal areas. And what is the Apex Corporation working on in secret? Pure B-movie nonsense plotting. Clichéd characters, nonsense exposition, but you know what? This is a film called Godzilla vs. Kong. It's a film about a giant lizard and a big monkey having a fist fight, Or two fist fights, Possibly three. Um, Adam Wingard directing here is clearly having fun with a big budget. He's um, embracing the energy that he can throw into there. I've always kind of liked Wingard's outings, even though he's been very divisive on films like Death Note and Blur Witch. But here he gets to smash some iconic characters together while decimating scenery. The cast are okay. Alexander Skarsgård, Millie Bobby Brown and Rebecca Hall can all do much better than what they did in this. But we don't care. We're here to see Godzilla beating up Kong and Kong beating up Godzilla. So we don't care that the material lended to the, the human cast is flat. They're only there to give us exposition. We're here for the visual spectacle. And visually, this is superb. The fights are magnificent. We already saw in the trailer the aircraft carrier Smackdown start. Oh, that whole sequence is jaw-dropping. Hollow Earth, we get to see inside there, and it's represented in an interesting manner with a gravity shift midpoint that gives it a bizarre unreality. And the Hong Kong fight devastates the city of Hong Kong in the way that the old Godzilla films do. The only drawback being that this time, because it's kind of looks hyper-real, it's kind of problematic in the same way that that closing act of Man of Steel is problematic because the human element is lost in the mayhem and carnage. In this film, whilst you're whooping and cheering as Godzilla and Kong are beating seven shades out of each other and smashing buildings, you get occasional shots within a building next to them of people bustling around. And that's when you realize thousands and thousands of people have just died and we're whooping and cheering. And that's the only problem I've got with the whole film.
0: I have a problem with apocalypse porn uh, as it, as it is because, uh, and, and that was the main problem for me with with Man of Steel is, hang on, you're devastating not just bricks and mortar here, <laughs> people, yeah, <laughs> who are, are 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 losing their life. Yeah, I kind of got addressed, I know, but I, I it, it it does bother me.
1: If you thought Man of Steel had that casual disregard for devastation in the final act, this film asks you cautiously to hold its beer while it goes and does worse. But the classic Godzilla films did just this when the man in the costume stomped on models. So it's a Godzilla film. In the end, if you're looking for a deep philosophical musing, scientific accuracy and character drama, you're in the wrong place. This is a B-movie with a budget, and the only shame that I've got from the whole thing is that I didn't get to see it on the big screen if this gets a cinematic release once cinemas open in the UK, I am there day one and I am watching this because I enjoyed it for what it was.
0: I I think that sounds perfect. I mean, this is the film that we've we've cited for a a long time as being the film the audience will want to see. And clearly they have, as we spoke about earlier. It's, It's also what cinema is now and it's all about spectacle. And if you want to see your introspective films, then there is a place for that. And it's uh, the majority of it is now um, on streaming services. Uh, Adam Wingard, who's come through that sort of midnight movie thing, in, in his own words, of, of doing, you know, almost Z-level plots, but adding a sort of a B-level uh, sense of style to it seemed the, the perfect match for me. Uh, I was disappointed with uh, King of the Monsters. I thought Skull Island was clever, smart, and did something incredibly different with with this particular franchise. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to sit and watch it with, with my little boy who's away right now because that's who the film is intended for. So I'm hanging on. Otherwise, I would have seen it. So I'll give you my 10 cents worth uh, next week with a bit of luck. What else have you got for us?
1: So I've got a few more films that I've seen that I've just got a quick things to say on. First of all, there's a documentary called The Dissident. It landed on Amazon Prime and it explores the events that surround the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. In 2018, it was an event that shocked the world and shone a spotlight on Saudi Arabia's efforts to control international dissent. Some of the subject has been explored on various TV investigative shows, such as Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. But this film spends time to dig deeper into the social media manipulation that the Saudi leaders have in place to control the narrative. And indeed, the film itself saw a bombing on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes scores that appeared to originate from the same data farms that the film is looking at. It's insightful, it's shocking, and it's a comprehensive documentary with a very human angle. Recommended viewing. That's The Dissident on Amazon Prime. Sounds good. Run on Netflix. Kira Allen is a teenager named Chloe who's wheelchair-bound and suffers from a variety of conditions, awaiting her acceptance letter to college. Her mother, Diane, played by Sarah Paulson, dotes and protects her, portioning her medications out, ensuring her world is safe from dangers but Chloe begins to suspect there's more going on and slowly begins to unravel a chilling truth that was predictable within the first five minutes of the film, plays to all the tropes and cliches that we've already seen done so much better many times for, and genuinely, within the first few minutes, I had worked out the big shock reveal and knew exactly how the film would play out and end. I called certain scenes being inserted because I've seen them done so much better in so many other films. This is a film in which Sarah Paulson is marvellous. Much like Sarah Paulson is marvellous in pretty much everything she's been in in the past five, 10 years. But she's so much better than the projects that she's cast in. The film itself is lacklustre.
0: Which is a shame because I'm a huge Sarah Paulson fan. I think she's absolutely stunning in even the smallest of roles.
1: If, uh, same here. I just want her to finally get something that is deserving of her talents. This is not it. And finally, there's a documentary called My Octopus Teacher that lots of people have been talking about because it's up for an Oscar. And it documents a year as Craig Foster begins exploring freediving and the undersea world, where he encounters a curious octopus and becomes quite connected, and some would say bizarrely obsessed with. And so is the setup for a half-hour wildlife on one special, dragged out for almost 90 minutes, with slow-motion scenes, a dreary commentary, and an attempt to be existential. In addition, there are moments when the obsession for the octopus gets to such a degree that I was genuinely wondering whether he'd actually had sexual relations with this octopus because it uh, is creepy. scary. It is creepy. There's fascinating underwater documentaries out there that can be watched. This is not one of them. I've got no idea why, it long, why it's in the category for Best Documentary Oscar because it just doesn't feel like an Oscar nominee kind of film. Not worth watching. Bit of a disappointment.
0: So changing tact entirely, did you manage to catch uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode three? Yeah. It was a strange one. Uh, we're coming halfway through the series. It felt like what, what's called in TV terms a bottle episode, which is usually pretty contained. There, there were moments that I really liked about it. This is becoming Lethal Weapon uh, to, some, <laughs> to the extent now that Zima, who's joined them, uh, as is on the side of our heroes, well, to a degree. And the relationship between them had that kind of Lethal Weapon vibe. Nothing to Not Lethal Weapon, as you know. It, it sounds high in my list of all-time favourite films.
1: It's. I still don't know what this series is building to. I yeah. still have no idea where it's leading. And we're halfway through. And I feel that I should care for something at this point. But I, I can't find anything to latch on to. Even, you know, Zemo. I, I, I love the character of Zemo. I love what they're doing with him. I'm a bit baffled by his disco dancing, but you know what? <laughs> it was a nice little smile moment. I love the fact that the name dropping places are names. I love that we get to see Madripoor. Comic book fans will know the importance of Madripoor and where it will eventually lead to. So it was Absolutely. nice to have that being seeded in. But it just feels like it's a case of a series that is throwing out loads of references, but doesn't quite know what it's doing with them. I'm, I, I'm losing have a, interest. Have an
0: agreement. I would say I'm losing interest. I'm actually pleased that it didn't have a huge action set piece this this week yeah. because that would have started to become repetitive. I, I just don't know where it's going. It was, there were was some interesting cameos. It needs to start saying something uh, pretty darn quick now for it to make sense and to know what kind of a show it is. I still don't quite know what kind of a show it is. I like the idea that it's all about identity and, and who are you Really? Uh, you know, in, in the terms the Winter Soldier, is is yeah. that who you are? Uh, in Falcon, it's, it's the mantle of, of having the shield. In, in Captain America, it's taking over from, from the real Captain America. So the weakest episode so far, I'll, I'll be sticking with it, but I, it needs to start paying off. We're halfway through now. We're kind of at the end, if this was a movie, we're kind of in that halfway point, it needs to start saying something. But I think the interesting thing is who is the power broker? And I'm hoping there's, there's a couple of interesting uh, theories out there. Of course, Mephisto's not raised his head on this one, <laughs> but who, as to who it is. And so I, I kind of like that mystery, but even that mystery needs to be expanded upon. Yeah. But I'll be sticking with it. But if there's anything else on streaming, Andy,
1: point it my way. Well, this coming week, we've got on Now TV and Sky, Angel Has Fallen, the Gerard Butler action film, which you know what to expect, and also Arch Enemy, which is a Joe Manganiello film where he plays a drunk claiming to be a hero from another planet, who when a kid goes gets kidnapped, he has a chance to try to prove that he can be the hero that he, his drunken delusions say that he is. On Netflix, there's Thunder Force, for those people who like Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer as... Uh, childhood friends who become super beings
0: and moving on.
1: Now, we get to we get to Amazon and they this week finally give us Palm Springs.
0: We've been giddy about this for so long, looking a, forward to Palm Springs.
1: A groundhog day-esque rom-com with Andy Samberg and Kristen maletti who are attending a wedding and start to realize they're experiencing the same day over and over again. I am on for this. This has taken over a year to come out in the UK and finally we'll get to see it and we'll get to talk about it next week Oh we will,
0: yes we will uh, Well that's about it for this week uh, but before we go Andy and I will be telling you about something that we've watched, enjoyed ate, played you name it, read, it is our neat thing for the week so Andy, what's your neat thing? Go first.
1: My neat thing is a series that started three years ago in New Zealand, and has finally arrived in the UK via Sky and Now TV. Wellington Paranormal. There's three seasons dropped over the past week, and it's a spin-off for What We Do in the Shadows.
0: And you know I love What We Do in the Shadows.
1: Now, you remember the scene in What We Do in the Shadows, the film, when the police are investigating the disturbance, and the officers are walking yeah. around getting like glamoured and confused. It's like, oh, that's a, that's a fire hazard over there. You need to be careful with that. Ah, there's not much ventilation in here. It's those officers in their own series. And the best way to describe it is it's X-Files with morons. (laughs) It's brilliant. There's different, like there's demonic possessions, uh, ghostly hauntings, alien abductions. You get an episode where a familiar character from what we do in the shadows will crop up. You get werewolves in there. And there is so much to love in here. Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement are both behind the making of this. And you can tell it's got all their essence over it. And it's a great companion piece in the same way that what we do in the Shadows series is a great companion piece to the film. This is another great companion piece. Folks have gone a different aspect of the paranormal. Thoroughly recommended.
0: Okay. uh, I'm looking forward to that one. I did notice it had landed. I'm just finding the right time, which will probably when we finish recording. My neat thing is uh, a game I started playing way back when, and that was The Last of Us Part 2. On previous podcasts, I mentioned that I'd started playing it and that I was was really enjoying it, but I found it hard work and I was finding it completely difficult. There's a certain point in the game where you are asked to test your loyalties and it does something very clever and talks about the whole game is about revenge, and 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 it gives you a moral crisis. And at that point, I had to put the game down because I found it very difficult. I found it emotionally very difficult. And the fact that a game was playing with my concepts of morality and what morality was about, which is the heart of heart of, of the story, is is very clever. It's very clever storytelling. This game asks a lot of a lot of very very deep questions, which I know have thrown. Uh, some game is completely out of it and um, um, what it's about and uh, and created some toxicity around it. But I rejoined it over the last week. Uh, I, I thought I'd given it enough distance and played a few other things to, to come back to it fresh. And, and it did help. This is 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 a tough cookie. It asks something of you and it asks something to talk about violence in a way that makes you understand that violence and revenge is very, very hollow, that nobody wins, um, that nobody takes away the prize from, from revenge, that it becomes all-consuming, that you lose something. You lose something physically, in, as, which happens to one of the major characters, but you lose something internally, and it destroys you from the inside out. Those are big questions to ask in a computer game. They'd be big questions to ask in any narrative form, especially movies and, and books. I hope they get addressed in the TV series and by the sounds of things, if it does make it to a second season, then then possibly it is. But it was worth it. It took time to get there. It was difficult. It made me look at myself and it made me think about violence and revenge in ways that I've never done before. And for that, I'll, I applaud it. Is it the best game I've ever played? No, I still put that down to The Last of Us Part 1. But as an exercise in talking about the futility of violence, and the futility of revenge, it is something special and spectacular. Will I ever play it again at this stage? I doubt it, who knows. But it is a great piece of writing, and that's my main thing for this week. Uh, so, Andy, that's it for this week. I'll see you next week for another show. Yep, indeed you will. Stay well. And you could call me a whistleblower, but I ain't just whistling.